Hello and welcome to Sparkle Tech, episode number 37 in the series of musings and mutterings from my favorite city, San Francisco. After the last couple of long and densely fact-laden episodes, I thought I'd relate a simpler story this week, and the move into the happy holiday season perversely requires a story both sad and a little obscure. As I was out riding around the chilly streets of San Francisco this week, I spotted a bumper sticker that I hadn't seen for some time. Kill your television. The increasing dominance of the internet as official American killer of time may be doing that job already, but the rich irony of seeing that particular message displayed in San Francisco struck me as it always does. Why? Because television as we know it was invented right here in Fog City, a fact most everyone has forgotten if they ever knew it, along with its inventor, Mr. Philo T. Farnsworth. Philo T. Farnsworth. I don't know if a more euphoniously nutty or memorable name for an inventor could possibly be dreamed up. Though it's the sort of name which has lamentably gone out of style, it, along with the rest of his story, strikes me as iconically American. He was born in August of 1906, just a few months after our own great earthquake, which makes it all the more poignant that the inventor of arguably the most earth-shaking technology of the 20th century, the genius of Green Street, has today been largely forgotten. Like Sam Brannan a hundred years before, Philo's history is a branch springing from the uniquely American religious tree of the Church of Latter-day Saints. He was born into a Mormon family in the settlement of Indian Creek in southwestern Utah, the grandson of a pioneer who settled the area with Brigham Young in 1856. It was a simple and hard-working sort of life, the life of subsistence farming, and just like Honest Abe Lincoln, young Philo was literally born in a log cabin. He was a very intelligent child, and like so many of his generation, became absolutely fascinated by the growing power of electricity. At six years old, a conversation with an out-of-state relative on a hand-cranked telephone shocked young Philo's brain into a frenzy of curiosity. He thought it was magic, of course, but when his father explained that it was a thing called an invention, Philo decided that an inventor would be a pretty cool thing to be. The transformation of society by lone men engaged in battle with nature and technology was the stuff of contemporary legend, and inventors with names like Thomas Edison, Alexander Graham Bell, and the Wright brothers formed a sort of modern pantheon of heroes. Hard times eventually forced the family to move to his uncle's ranch at Rigby, Utah. The attic of their new home became a co-conspirator in the development of this young brain, concealing a treasure trove of popular science magazines which poured fuel on the fire of Philo's interests and launched a period of intense autodidacticism. I think the first time his family noticed that he might be something special was when the power system at the ranch broke down. At just 12 years old, in front of the dubious frowns of parents and uncle, he stripped the machine down to its steel underwear, bolted it back together, and it worked perfectly. That was just the beginning, because before too long he was using the power system to operate the washing machine, sewing machine, and even the lights of the barn. By the time he entered high school, riding the four miles on the back of a horse, 
He was way, way ahead of his classmates and was easily able to convince his chemistry teacher to give him special instruction and to allow him to audit a senior-level course. Justin Tolman, the chemistry teacher, later said that Philo's explanation of the theory of relativity was the clearest and most concise that he had ever heard. He had a firm grasp on such concepts as radio waves, subatomic particles, and the developing field of mechanical disc-operated television. Experiments in long-range image transmission were already underway in Europe, but they were inefficient, dead ends, relying on clumsy mechanical processes. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, Philo was doing his chores, walking up and down behind a horse, back and forth plowing the sharecropped fields, when he was struck by a bolt of conceptual lightning. The plow dissected the field methodically, cutting line after line into the earth and systematically reducing the plot into a pattern of parallel lines. Why couldn't the same thing be done to a picture, electronically? Why, you could transmit an image from one place to another by electrically scanning the image and shooting the resultant stream of electrons at a fluorescent screen in a vacuum tube. It would be just like the reading of a book, scanning a page one line at a time to arrive at a complete picture in the brain. All electronic, no moving parts at all. He described this concept of an image dissector tube to his chemistry teacher and even scribbled a complete conceptual diagram of the system on the blackboard. It was 1921, and Philo was just 14 years old. The word television is defined by the OED as meaning the action of seeing by means of Hertzian waves or otherwise what is existing or happening in a place concealed or distant from the observer's eyes. German scientists working on the problem of sending images from one location to the other apparently came up with the word Fanzian, or far-seeing, to describe what they were trying to accomplish. Russian scientists were also working on the problem, and a scientist speaking at the 1900 World's Fair in Paris translated that word into French as television, which was translated in turn by the English magazine The Electrician as television. That this happened in 1900 ought to give you some idea of how widespread the attempt to solve this problem would become by the time young Philo had his epiphany a couple of decades later. In 1922, Philo's uncle lost the ranch, and the whole family was once again forced to relocate, this time to Provo, Utah, the home of Brigham Young University. He was admitted as a freshman with only two years of high school under his belt, but was only able to attend for two years before his father suddenly died, forcing him to drop out and become the family breadwinner. He worked at anything he could get to keep food on the family table, from logging crewman to radio repair. He even applied for and passed the Navy's officer candidate school examination, but soon discovered that the regimentation of the Navy just wasn't for him. He came back to Utah and got a job as a Salt Lake City street cleaner, a seemingly tragic waste of his intellectual gifts. But opportunity presents itself in mysterious forms, and it was the detailed knowledge of the city's street plan learned on the cleaning crew which opened a door for him. He got a new job involving working for a charity run by a couple of professional fundraisers from California named George Everson and Leslie Gorell. As they worked on stuffing envelopes, sorting bulk mailings, and other necessary minutiae of the fundraising world, 
Philo regaled the two with his dreams of all-electronic television and his image dissector. Farnsworth struck them immediately as a young man of quality, someone who was dedicated, organized, well-informed, and able to motivate others. And it wasn't long before they were on board as investors in a brand new venture. On May 24, 1926, the partnership of Everson, Farnsworth, and Gorell was formed. Three days later, Philo married Elma Pem Garden, his sweetheart from the Brigham Young days. This may be typical for men cursed with gigantic brains, but Pem recalled later that their wedding night was not exactly what she had been expecting. He told her, There's another woman in my life, and her name is Television. Pem spent the night alone while Philo discussed his project with his business partners. Soon the Farnsworths set out across the country for the new promised land of San Francisco, which seems to somehow attract technological experimentation and innovation. As they moved into their new home on Vallejo Street, the partners brought the electronic television concept to the research engineers at the California Institute of Technology, who examined it closely and deemed the idea feasible. With this technological blessing, financial backing for the idea fell into place, and Philo set up a laboratory in a loft at the base of Telegraph Hill, number 202 Green Street. On September 7, 1927, at the ripe old age of 21, Farnsworth's machine was finally ready for a test. He carefully painted a square of glass black, scratched a straight line down the center, and then moved to an adjacent room with his wife, his partners, and the brand new receiver. An assistant dropped the glass square in between the image dissector tube and a bright carbon arc lamp. Farnsworth turned on the controls and slowly adjusted the set. September is just about when summer starts rolling in around here, and I have a feeling it was hot in that room. I wouldn't be at all surprised if beads of sweat were running down the foreheads of all concerned if they stared at the receiver. Suddenly, through the static, that straight line appeared. On command, the assistant rotated the glass square 90 degrees, and a hush fell as the whole room saw the line illuminated in that tiny square of bluish light, rotating in perfect sync. Apparently Philo had an underdeveloped flair for the dramatic, for history records that his words upon seeing this historic event were these. There you are, electronic television. I personally prefer the line used by George Everson in a telegram to another investor. The damn thing works! Farnsworth spent his next year in San Francisco like a man driven by demons, working day and night, losing weight and developing insomnia to perfect this machine. Even when he did manage to drift off, his subconscious mind remained hard at work solving technical problems, and he'd often leap from his bed and jot down solutions in total darkness. In September of the next year, his picture appeared accompanying an article in the San Francisco Chronicle, hailing him as a young genius quietly working away in his San Francisco laboratory on his revolutionary light machine. Farnsworth had demonstrated the infant technology to a skeptical crowd by showing a small blurry moving image of silver screen superstar Mary Pickford a few days earlier. He heard about the publication of the story through the shouts of a newsboy as he and his wife headed home from a rare night off out at the movies, and was startled to see his own picture featured right on the front page. 
It's hard to imagine what he must have felt like as he read the story, which seemed to validate his fondest hopes for his high-tech baby. Out of the West, like the realization of a prophet's dream, has come the greatest wizardry yet of the civilized day, television. What Farnsworth did not realize was that the era of the independent inventor was coming to an end, and that his idealistic dream that television could help wipe out ignorance and misunderstanding would crash directly into this harsh reality. The era of the giant corporation was upon us, and these behemoths of industry had had it with negotiating with eccentric inventors tucked away in garages all over the country. The era of the corporate laboratory had arrived, with genius finally subservient to the monthly salary, personal brilliance swelling the accounts of industrial giants such as General Electric and DuPont. When the Chronicle article appeared, the kingpin of the most important media monster read it from the East Coast with great interest. In the 1920s, the Radio Corporation of America was the 800-pound gorilla of radio. Like a precursor of Microsoft, they hired the best minds in the field and cornered the market on patents and bright ideas. And again, like Microsoft, were often under fire from Washington for their monopoly practices. No one could build a radio without a license from RCA, nor could a radio be sold without money ending up in their corporate coffers. As David Sarnoff, the natalie-dressed president of the RCA, read that Chronicle story, he worried about this newfangled device cutting in on radio and its monopoly profits. His strategy was twofold. First, he began a propaganda campaign aimed at convincing the public that television was a long way off and that they should continue buying radios and not hold out for this next big thing. Second, he did what the leader of any country during wartime would do. He sent out a spy. Vladimir Zworykin, head of television research at Westinghouse, was secretly hired to visit Farnsworth's laboratory and bring back the goods. Zworykin himself had applied for a patent for a method. Zworykin himself had applied for a patent for a method of electronic television back in 23, but he had no working model and the patent had not yet been approved. He made an appointment to visit the lab in early 1930, not long after Black Tuesday and the crash of the stock market. Despite his technical successes, Farnsworth was under severe pressure from his backers to sell out hoping that Westinghouse would decide to license his technology and not realizing that Dworkin was there as a spy, he conducted the tour of the lab himself. Dworkin was amazed and impressed by the work, holding up the image dissector and exclaiming, This is a splendid instrument. I wish I would have invented it myself. He immediately returned to the Death Star, RCA's New Jersey laboratory, and began trying to reverse engineer Farnsworth's machine. After a year of failure, harried by antitrust actions, radio price wars, and a catastrophic decline in the value of RCA's stock price, David Sarnoff lost patience with this approach and decided to take direct action. He visited Farnsworth's lab himself and offered to buy the company and its patents for $100,000. This offer was minuscule in proportion to the value of the technology. It was insulting and Sarnoff even wanted Philo's services thrown in into the bargain. Farnsworth and his backers refused. 
Well, this is the sad part of the story, the part where control over money and media come into play, and even winning feels like losing. Sarnoff and RCA decided to play hardball and bring in the lawyers, something they'd done time and time again to uncooperative radio inventors. They attacked Farnsworth's patents in the courts, claiming that they had truly developed television and that he was infringing on their invention. RCA had a very weak case, especially since they had no working machine, and Farnsworth's old high school teacher, Tolman, not only testified in court that Farnsworth had conceived the idea when he was a high school student, but also reproduced the sketch of the image dissector that he had drawn on the schoolroom blackboard. Though ungrounded in fact, this strategic attack by RCA tied Farnsworth and his company up for almost a decade, draining him financially and emotionally. When the patent office finally handed down their decision in 1935 affirming the obvious, that Philo T. Farnsworth was the undisputed inventor of electronic television, and that RCA owed him royalties, Sarnoff snapped, RCA doesn't pay royalties, we collect them! RCA appealed, and the process dragged through the courts for years thereafter. It was a battle of attrition, and RCA was winning. But that was hardly the end of it. Sarnoff used his mastery of the media to win the battle of public opinion and consumer attention in spite of the court's decision. RCA sponsored a television pavilion at the 1939 World's Fair in New York, finagling the rights to exclusive radio and television broadcasts and filled stores with brand new RCA televisions. At a press conference that would become a historic event, he added insult to injury with these pompous words. It is with a feeling of humbleness that I come to this moment of announcing the birth in this country of a new art so important in its implications that it is bound to affect all society. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we add sight to sound. He then announced that RCA's NBC network would begin regular television broadcasts. Farnsworth could have sued, but he was spent from the years of fighting. Shortly after this brazen display, the United States entered World War II. This led the government to suspend the production of televisions altogether, leaving Farnsworth's hard-won patents suspended in mid-air, the clock ticking on their expiration dates, and poor Philo unable to profit. In the meantime, Sarnoff and RCA kept up the non-stop public relations campaign designed to convince the world that they were the true fathers of television. They also used these years to continue the development of their own system, and when Philo's patents expired, were ready to step in and take control of the industry. The PR campaign, the increasing financial pressures, the stress of the legal battles, and the expiration of his whole life's work drove Philo to drink, to a bleeding ulcer, and ultimately to a nervous breakdown and shock therapy. That PR campaign has continued to this day and has been devastatingly effective in erasing the memory of Philo T. Farnsworth's name. For decades, the accepted truth, the received wisdom, so to speak, was that RCA was the holy source of television. If you visit their website today, you'll find Sarnoff and Zworykin given all the credit, with not a mention of Farnsworth in the entire site. History is written by the winners, as they say, and it's true. He was written right out of existence. Had you heard of the man before today? I rest my case. And for more evidence, a piece of suggestive trivia. Television's highest award for excellence, the Emmy, 
is actually named after the reverse-engineered picture tube developed by Zwarikin, the so-called image orthicon. Emmy after image, feminized as Emmy. Hmm. It should be called the Farney, don't you think? Farnsworth eventually recovered from his nervous breakdown and, despite the electroshock therapy, remained a genius. He simply went on to other projects, and no small potatoes. Radar systems, the electron microscope, the first baby incubator, and research on nuclear fusion are listed among his post-television accomplishments. And upon his death in 1971, though bankrupted through the perils of government funding for his fusion research, he held 300 U.S. and foreign patents. Scientific American magazine called him one of the ten greatest mathematicians of his time, and Time magazine labeled him one of the most important scientists and thinkers of the 20th century. A limited list of these patents is available on the official Philo T. Farnsworth website through sparkletech.com. Years later, just about his only public acknowledgement was an appearance as a mystery guest on the television program I've Got a Secret, a sort of 20-question-style game show in which a panel was given the assignment of asking the mystery guest yes or no questions in order to discover the guest's claim to fame. One of the panelists asked Dr. X if he had invented some kind of machine that might be painful when used. To general laughter from the audience, Farnsworth answered dryly, Yes, sometimes it's most painful. There's video of this appearance available online, and I'll throw up a link to it on the website. It's really worth a look. He talks a little bit about his research, putting himself into historical context, and discussing heavy concepts for the time, such as bandwidth and line screen. Ideas common today, but in 1957, you can see the panel's eyes collectively glazing over. He stumped the panel, by the way, walking away with a pack of Winston cigarettes and 80 bucks. The Kill Your Television bumper sticker which prompted this episode was in truth something that Farnsworth might have agreed with. He was disgusted by the dreck that appeared on his invention, the antithesis of his old idealistic dream of communication and universal understanding. Es war leider in einer blöde Zeitverschwendung geworden. His son Kent reports that he felt he had created kind of a monster, a way for people to waste a lot of their lives. He goes on, Throughout my childhood, his reaction to television was, There's nothing on it worthwhile, and we're not going to watch it in this household, and I don't want it in your intellectual diet. Despite this attitude, since his death, his widow, Pem Farnsworth, has worked tirelessly to restore his place in history, and there has been some movement in that direction over the years. Among her accomplishments in this regard were to see Farnsworth awarded a posthumous Emmy, ironically, a memorial plaque erected at his San Francisco lab over on Green Street, his image on a postage stamp, and a statue complete with image dissector placed in Statuary Hall in Washington, D.C. She's also written a biography of Philo, for which you can also check the website. In a perhaps even more appropriate tribute, his name is memorialized in the name of the wacky scientist character on Matt Groening's popular television series Futurama, Professor Farnsworth. Farnsworth's story reveals a couple of the sometimes contradictory truths about America. The first displaying a bright side in which, to subvert the old Japanese saying, the nail that stands up is not hammered down, but encouraged to flourish and succeed, if it can, on its own merits. 
On the darker side, it's a telling story of how the power of capital and of media control can crush the individual and influence the writing of history. My only hope today is that I've helped a little bit to restore this little guy's place in the Pantheon and brought a little honor to the memory of the genius of Green Street. For music this week, thanks go out to a band called Might Could with a track called Lapse, provided by the Podshow Podsafe Music Network. Check them out at music.podshow.com. Even though I've sent out individual email messages to all concerned, I want to take this opportunity to thank the people who visited the website and donated a few dollars to the SparkleTech Fund. It's quite moving to be appreciated in that sort of concrete way. I, I don't know if I can adequately express to you how much I appreciate it, but just know that I, I truly do. And while I'm thanking people, let me also thank Clay Williams from Budget Travel Magazine for a nice mention in the December issue. You'll find the usual assortment of photos and links on sparkletech.com, as well as the opportunity to comment on this and past shows. And please take a minute and glance at that online listener map, punch in a digital pin, and show me where you're listening from. You can always contact me at sparkletech at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Till next time.